Hi, and welcome um, to How Did It Get So Late Radio, a live broadcast Tuesday nights at 9, 10 p.m. where I read you a short story. Um, I wasn't going to do a story this week, but last minute I decided to pull something together. Um, I'm leaving New York tomorrow to go to a Boro Mending Workshop at Penland in North Carolina because I was very lucky to have gotten a scholarship to attend, um, but I've been packing and getting myself together, um, which I did earlier than expected, so here we are, um, glad, glad I could make it, um, I feel bad because I, I will be at Penland for the next two weeks, so I will unfortunately not be doing um, any stories, but after I come back, we will be in it, um, yes, so, um, I am very excited, though, to take a train down, um, and I can't wait to just sit (laughs) for seven hours, um, and, I mean, if anyone knows me I love trains so um to sit for seven hours on a train oh I mean a dream but I have some like little exercises I'm supposed to do um for the mending workshop so I'll be there with my little needle and thread and (laughs) um and then doing some work stuff as well so but it'll be very nice. Um, I'm sad to leave Noodle, too. Um, I really just keep abandoning him. Um, but uh, I also have, if you were listening last week um, with Noodle's interruptions, I now have not one but two cats in here. So um, Noodle is sleeping. I don't think he'll be an issue, but we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, anyway... Uh, this was kind of a short introduction. I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, anything, anything else. Um, living in New York has been lovely. Um, and yeah, I, I <laughs> um, oh wow, this really was a short, I, again, I really didn't have a whole lot of, uh, time to plan here. Um, but I'm I'm really excited also to go home and see my mom and my sister and my aunt um, and Richmond. I feel like, um, I mean, I haven't been gone for very long, but I think this time leaving is going to be a little bit sadder just because I know that I'm not return, like I don't have a, a return date necessarily. So, but maybe it'll be less chaotic, and so my family will be less stressed and less emotional, I don't know. Um, But I am excited to see them. Um, A lot to fit in in the one day that I'll be there before I drive down, but worth it. Um, 
I'm, I am also lucky that I'm so close and can just pop down. Um, okay, well, this, this will have to do. Whoever is here, <laughs> if they're not here already, they're gonna miss the beginning then. Um, our reminders for the evening. If you have any stories you want to share, there's an email link at the bottom of the website. Um, please feel free. Any stories you've written, any ones you want to hear, um, I will read it all. And also, broadcasts will be available until the next one airs a week later. But in this case, um, this one will just be up for <laughs> two weeks. So, which maybe is, this is like the worst one I've done so far. It's, I'm, uh, in chaos, but, um, maybe I'll put them all up, uh, for that little bit again. Anyway. So, um, this week's story is actually a little different. It's actually the beginning of a full novel. Um, I, I think the passage that I'm reading, I'm starting at the beginning, so it's like the prologue and probably the first chapter, which is very short. Um, but I think it can really stand on its own and... Also, I would read this book. I think I'll probably continue to read this book. Um, and maybe you will be so into it, too, that you pick up where we left off. Um, and I found it on... There's this great, um, like, archive of pretty much anything you could ever want. Um, books... Um, like old movies, not necessarily new ones, um, radio, um, transcripts, which I just was looking at today because I didn't realize they had them, um, but it's called Internet Archive and essentially you can, um, you can search for anything and then if they have it, you can borrow it, um, if you make like a, I sound like an ad right now, but it is really cool, um, that they have this. So, yes, that's, if, if you want to finish the book, um, it's 324 pages. So, but, it, uh, I mean, you'll see, you'll see how good, <laughs> but it's called How Should a Person Be, um, published in 2013, written by Sheila Heidi, um, who is Canadian. Um, she's, I think she's 45. I didn't really get, um, a chance to do a lot of research on her, unfortunately. Um, but she also has a little short story in The New Yorker, uh, that I almost, like, switched and read, but I truly, like, it was two minutes before <laughs> this was starting, so I did not, but, um, yeah, she, she's a writer, <laughs> um, oh, it also says, oh, well, no, that's not important, she lives in Toronto currently, um, so, yeah, but anyway, okay, 
Um, I have absolutely no idea how long this one will be. Um, again, chaos we're in right now. But, um, honestly, oh, the prologue is pretty short, uh, and I've planned on reading the first chapter as well, so I don't imagine it'll be more than 30 or 40 minutes, um, which is truly a complete estimation of the time it'll take, so not quite sure, but, um, honestly, whenever I whenever I stop reading, that will be the time. <laughs> so, without further ado, uh, here is how should a person be. How should a person be? For years and years, I asked it of everyone I met. I was always watching to see what they were going to do in any situation, so I could do it too. I was always listening to their answers, so if I liked them, I could make them my answers too. I noticed the way people dressed, the way they treated their lovers, and everyone. There was something to envy. You could admire anyone for being themselves. It's hard not to when everyone's so good at it. But when you think of them all together like that, how can you choose? How can you say... I'd rather be responsible, like Misha, than irresponsible, like Margot. Responsibility looks so good on Misha, and irresponsibility looks so good on Margot. How could I know which would look best on me? I admire all the great personalities down through time, like Andy Warhol and Oscar Wilde. They seem to be so perfectly themselves in every way. I didn't think, those are great souls, but I did think, those are some great personalities for our age. Charles Darwin, Albert Einstein, they did things, but they were things. I know that personality is just an invention of the news media. I know that character exists from the outside alone. I know that inside the body there's just temperature. So how do you build your soul? At a certain point, I know you have to forget about your soul and just do the work you're required to do. To go on and on about your soul is to miss the whole point of life. I could say that with more certainty if I knew the whole point of life. To worry too much about Oscar Wilde and Andy Warhol is just a lot of vanity. How should a person be? I sometimes wonder about it, and I can't help answering like this. A celebrity. But for all that I love celebrities, I would never move somewhere that celebrities actually exist. My hope is to live a simple life in a simple place where there's only one example of everything. By a simple life, I mean a life of undying fame that I don't have to participate in. I don't want anything to change except to be as famous as one can be but without that changing anything. Everyone would know in their hearts, let's just wait for this lovely motorcycle. Nice. That one's, that one's got a big dick on him, doesn't he? Um, I don't want anything to change except to be as famous as one can be. 
but without that changing anything. Everyone would know in their hearts that I am the most famous person alive, but not talk about it too much. And for no one to be interested in taking my picture, for they'd all carry around in their heads an image of me that was unchanging, startling, and magnetic. Uh, he may very well be back. Interesting. Maybe at a at a stoplight, perhaps. You know, this is just absolute chaos. I am so sorry. It's not normally like this, <laughs> but you know, this is the price we pay to live in a big city. Um, wouldn't have it any other way. Um, but. I, I'm just really jealous that I'm not on a motorcycle, um, so, okay, I think, I think we're in the clear. No one has to know, know what I think, for I don't really think anything at all, and no one has to know the details of my life, for there are no good details to know. It is the quality of fame one is after here, without any of its qualities. In an hour, Margot's going to come over, and we're going to have our usual, usual conversation. Before I was 25, I never had any friends, but the friends I have now interest me non-stop. Margot compliments me in interesting ways. She paints my picture, and I record what she's saying. We do whatever we can to make each other feel famous. That's really cute to record. Um, record what your friends are saying I have a little um, tape recorder um, like a pocket mini cassette tape recorder that I used to carry around a whole bunch and um, record stuff and I don't do it so much anymore which is sad I should definitely do it I think during the move um, I kind of packed it up and just always thought about it but never honestly I didn't know where it was, but I did recently find it, so <laughs> maybe I'll start doing that. That would be great. In this way, I should be satisfied with being famous to three or four of my friends, and yet it's an illusion. They like me for who I am, and I would rather be liked for who I appear to be, and f for who I appear to be, to be who I am. We are all specks of dirt on this earth at the same time. I look at all the people who are alive today and think, these are my contemporaries? These are my fucking contemporaries? We live in an age of some really great blowjob artists. Every era has its art form. The 19th century, I know, was tops for the novel. I just do what I can not to gag too much. I know boyfriends get really excited when they can touch the soft flesh at the back of your throat. At these times, I just try to breathe through my nose and not throw up on their cock. I did vomit a little the other day, but I kept right on sucking. Soon the vomit was gone, and then my boyfriend pulled me up to kiss me. Aside from blowjobs, though, I'm through with being the perfect girlfriend. Just through with it. 
Then, if he's sore with me, let him dump my ass. That will just give me more time to be a genius. One good thing about being a woman is we haven't too many examples yet of what a genius looks like. It could, it could be me. There is no ideal model for how my mind should be. For the men, it's pretty clear. That's the reason you see them trying to talk themselves up all the time. I laugh when they won't say what they mean so the academics will study them forever. I'm thinking of you, Marxy, and you, Christian B. You just keep peddling your phony baloney genius crap while I'm up here giving blowjobs in heaven. My ancestors took what they had, which was nothing, and left their routines as slaves in Egypt to follow Moses into the desert in search of the promised land. For 40 years, they wandered through sand. At nights, they rested where they could against the dunes that had been built up by the winds. Waking the next morning, they took the flour from their sacks and moistened it with their spit and beat together a smooth dough, then set off, stooped across the sand, the dough spread across their backs. It mingled with the salt of their sweat and hardened in the sun, and this is what they had for lunch. Some people spread the dough flat, and that dough became um, matzah. Others rolled tubes and fastened the ends, and those people ate bagels. For so many years, I have written soul like this, S-O-U-L-D. I make no other consistent typo. A girl I met in France once said, cheer up, maybe it doesn't actually mean you've sold your soul. I was staring unhappily into my beer, but rather that you never had a soul to sell. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) We were having Indian food. The man next to us was an Englishman, and he brightened up. He said, It's so nice to hear English being spoken here. I haven't heard any English in weeks. We tried not to smile, for smiling only encourages men to bore you and waste your time. I thought about what that girl had said for a week. I was determined to start the task I had long been putting off, having for too long imagined it would take care of itself in the course of things without my paying attention to it, all while knowing in my heart that I was avoiding it, trying to patch myself together with my admiration for the traits I saw so clearly in everyone else. I said to myself sternly, It's time to stop asking questions of other people. It is time to just go into a cocoon and spin your soul. But when I got back to the city, I neglected this plan in favor of hanging out with my friends every night of the week, just as I had been doing before I left for the continent. The girl who had given me her condolences was in her mid-thirties, an American in Paris named Jen. She was a friend of a friend and had, in a friendly way, accepted my request to be put up for the nights I would be there. Her job was doing focus groups for large corporations, including the United States Army, which wanted help with its recruitment advertising, which this, it, uh, the fact that there's recruitment advertising, honestly, horrifying. 
I, I don't know something about it <laughs> um but we want you right she had some ethical qualms about this but was more concerned with her boyfriend who had suddenly started ignoring her this was the central preoccupation of her life when i arrived because it was the more emotional there are certain people who do not feel like they were raised by wolves and they are the ones who make the world tick. They are the ones who keep everything functioning so the rest of us can worry about what sort of person we should be. We've all, we have read all the books, and I know what they say. You, but better in every way. And yet, there are so many ways of being better, and these ways can contradict each other. Yesterday, Margot told me a story that her mother often tells about when she was a baby. It took Margot a long time to talk, and everyone thought she was a little dumb. Margot's mother had a friend who was a bit messed up and really into self-help books and all sorts of self-improvement tapes. One day, she had been telling Margot's mother about a technique in which whatever problem you came across in your life, you were just supposed to throw up your hands and say, who cares? That night, as Margot's parents and her slightly older sister were sitting around the table, and Margot was in her high, high chair, her sister spilled her milk, and the glass broke all over the table. Her mother started yelling, and her sister started crying. Then, from over the high chair, they heard little Margot going, Who cares? I'm sorry, but I'm really glad she's my best friend. If I had known, when I was a baby, that in America there was a baby who was throwing up her hands and saying first words out of her mouth, who cares, and that one day she'd be my best friend, I would have relaxed for the next 23 years, not a single care in the world. Act 1. That was the prologue. Um, this is chapter 1. Shalom Paints. We were having brunch together. It was Sunday. I got there first. Then Misha and Margot arrived. Then Shalom and his boyfriend, John. A few weeks earlier, the owners had repainted the diner walls from a grease-splattered beige to a thickly pastel blue and had spray-painted giant pictures of scrambled eggs and strips of bacon and pancakes with syrup. It ruined the place somewhat, but the food was cheap. It was never crowded, and they always had a place for us. You know, normally I would say anything from grease-splattered beige would be an improvement, but that... Oh, Spray-painted giant pictures of scrambled eggs and strips of bacon and pancakes with syrup. It's a lot. It's a lot. Do you need to see photos of the food while you're eating it? <laughs> Debatable. I shared a breakfast special and a grilled cheese with Margot. John asked for our fries. I don't remember what we started off talking about or who was the funniest that day. I remember none of the details of our conversation until the subject turned to ugliness. I said that a few years ago I had looked around at my life and realized that all the ugly people had been weeded out. Shalom said he couldn't enjoy a friendship with someone he wasn't attracted to. Margot said it was impossible for her to picture an ugly person, and Misha 
remarked that ugly people tend to stay at home. <laughs> Damn. These are a few of the sordid fruits that led to the ugly painting competition. When Shalom was a teenager, he had dreamed of being a theater actor, but his parents didn't want him to go to the after school. Oh, to the after school? Oh my god. Okay, it's one of those scenarios where there's like a dash in the middle of the word, and it says theater school. <laughs> they didn't think it was practical, and encouraged him to go to art school instead. Oh, much more practical than theater school, let me tell you. Sitting here reading a few people a book. <laughs> um, so he went. And his first year there, up late one night painting, as the sun began rising with the morning, a sudden and strong feeling came up inside him that said, I must be an artist. I must paint for the rest of my life. I will not settle for anything else. No other future is acceptable to me. It was an epiphany and a decision, both, from which there would be no turning back the first and most serious vow of his life. So this past spring, he completed his MFA thesis and graduated. Who came up with the idea for the ugly painting competition? I don't remember, but once I got enthusiastic, suddenly we all were. The idea that Margot and Shalom would compete to see who could make the uglier painting I really hoped it would happen. I was curious to see what the results would be, and secretly I envied them. I wanted to be a painter suddenly. I wanted to make an ugly painting, pit mine against theirs, and see who would win. What would my painting look like? How would I proceed? I thought it would be a simple, interesting thing to do. I had spent so much time trying to make the play I was writing, and my life and myself into an object of beauty. It was exhausting, and all that I knew. Margot agreed to be the competition right away, but Shalom was reluctant. He didn't see the point. The premise turned him off so much that one should intentionally make something ugly. Why? But I egged him on, pleading, and finally he gave in. As soon as Shalom returned home after brunch, he set about making his entry, so he wouldn't have to think about it anymore. He explained to me later, or have looming before him, oh wait, oh, Jesus, so he wouldn't have to think about it anymore. He explained to me later, or have it looming before him the prospect of having to make something ugly. He went straight into his studio, having already decided what he would do. He imagined it would be like this intellectual exercise that he could sort of approach in a cold fashion. He would just do everything he hated when his students did it. He started the composition smack dab in the middle of a piece of paper, since paper is uglier than canvas, of course. Then he painted a weird, cartoonish man in profile with fried egg eyes. A lot of eggs. We're, we're, we're having the theme of eggs. And he outlined things instead of shading them. 
delineating each individual eyelash instead of making a nostril he sort of drew a hole in the background he painted fluffy white clouds over orange triangular mountains he made the background a gross pinkish brownish gray using mineral sediment dug up from the bottom of a jar in which he washed his brushes for skin tone he just mixed red and white and for the shadows he used blue though he thought in the end there would be some salvageable qualities to the painting it just kept getting more and more disgusting until finally he began to, began to feel so awful that he finished it off quickly dipping a thick brush in black paint he wrote at the bottom really carelessly the sun will come out tomorrow then he stepped back and looked at the result and found it so revolting that he had to get out he had to get it out of his studio and left it on the kitchen table to dry Shalom went out to get some groceries for dinner, but the entire time he was gone, he felt nauseous. Returning home and setting the bags on the counter, he saw the painting lying there and thought, I cannot see that thing every time I walk into the kitchen. So he took it into the basement and left it near the washer and dryer. From there, the day just got worse. Making the painting had set off a train of really depressing and terrible thoughts, so that by the time evening came, he was fully plunged in despair. John returned home, and Shalom started following him around the apartment, whining and complaining about everything. Even though John had gone into the bathroom and shut the door behind him, Shalom still stood on the other side, moaning about what a failure he was, saying that nothing good would ever happen to him. Indeed, that nothing good ever had. His life had been a waste. It's like you work so hard to train a dog to be good, he called through the door. And the dog is in your hand. Then one day you're faced to beat all the goodness out of that dog in order to make it cruel. That day was today. John grunted. Then Shalom plodded into the living room and sent an email to the group of us saying, This project fills me with shame and self-loathing. I just did it. I just did my ugly painting, and I feel like I raped myself. Okay, well, sir, how's yours, Margot? Margot, the better artist, wrote back. I spent all day on my bed island reading the New York Times. Fifteen years ago, there lived a painter in our town, town named Eli Langer. When he was 26, an artist-run center presented his first show. The paintings were gorgeous and troubled, very masterful, all done in rich browns and reds. They were moody and shadowy with old men, girls, and plush chairs, windows, and naked laps. A sadness clouded the few faces which were obscured by darkness and lit only by faint moonlight. The canvases were very large, and they seemed like the work of someone with great assurance and freedom. After the show had been up for only a week, it was shut down by the police. People claimed that the pictures were child pornography. The canvases were confiscated, and they were sen sentenced to be destroyed by the court. 
The story was reported in newspapers all across the country, and the trial played on TV for an entire year. Prominent artists and intellectuals became involved and spoke publicly and wrote editorials about artistic freedom. In the end, the judge ruled in Eli's favor, partly. The paintings were returned to him, but on the condition that no one would ever see them again. He left them in a corner of his mother's attic, where they remain, covered in soot and mold today. After the trial was done, Eli felt exhausted and shaken. Now, when he stepped before a canvas, brush in hand, he found that the spirit lay dead in him. He left Toronto for L.A., where he thought he might be able to feel more free, but the images still did not come as they had before. Crushed with a new insecurity and inhibition, he applied to his now tiny canvases only hesitant whites or whites muddled with pink or a bit of yellow or the most apologetic blue so that even if you stepped really close to the painting you could barely make out a thing for the few solo shows he managed to complete in the years following the trial he created only deeply abstract work not anything even remotely figurative several times a year Eli would return to Toronto for a week or so and would go to art parties and talk about painters and the importance of painting and would speak confidently about brushstroke and color and line and would do coke and be sensitive and brutish. On his forearms were tattooed, were tattooed 12 point letters, the initials of local women artists he had loved, none of whom would speak to him anymore. The male painters embraced him like he was a prodigal son and word always got around have you seen eli langer eli's back in town late last winter margot talked with him for the first time they sat on an iron bench behind a gallery after an opening surrounded by snow warmed by a fire burning in a cam margot worked harder at art and was more skeptical of its effects than any artist i knew though she was happier in her studio than anywhere else. I never heard her claim that painting mattered. She hoped it could be meaningful, but had her doubts, so worked doubly hard to make her choice of being a painter as meaningful as it could be. She never talked about galleries or went on about which brands of paint were best. Sometimes she felt bad and confused that she had not gone into politics, which seemed more straightforward more straightforwardly useful i was about to say more straightforward i don't know about that and what she thought she was probably well suited for having something of the dictator inside or something of the dictator's terrible certainty her first feeling every morning was shame about all the things wrong in the world that she wasn't trying to fix and so it embarrassed her when people remarked on her distinctive brushstrokes or when people called her work beautiful, a word she claimed not to understand. Then, that night, around a fire burning in a can, she and Eli spent several hours talking about color and brushstroke and line. They went on to email for several months. Oh, I love an email. Underrated form of communication. That and phone calls. And she was briefly converted into the sort of painter he was. 
a painter who respected painting in itself. But after two months, her art crush dematerialized. He's just another man who wants to teach me something, she said. Misha and I had planned to take a walk that afternoon, so I went to the apartment he and Margot shared. When I arrived, he was in his study at his computer, worrying his life by checking his email. We left together and walked north through the neighborhood. It was one of the few genuinely hot days we'd had that summer. As the sky went dark with dusk, I asked him whether Margot had begun her ugly painting yet. He said he thought not. I said I was really eager to see the results. Misha said it'll be good for Shalom. He's so afraid of anything hippie. Is making an ugly painting hippie? I asked him. It kind of is, he said. There's like experimentation to no clearly valuable end. It's certainly more hippie than making a painting that you know is going to be good. Why should Shalom make a painting that he doesn't know is going to be good? I don't know, he said, but I do think Shalom has a fear of being bad or of doing the wrong thing. He seems really afraid to take a wrong step at any moment in any direction. And if what you're afraid of is to take a wrong step at any moment in any direction, that can be limiting. It's good for an artist to try things. It's good for an artist to be ridiculous. Shalom should be a hippie. Because with him, there's always a tremendous amount of caution. What's wrong with caution? Well, there's a misunderstanding, isn't there? Isn't that what was happening over brunch? Shalom was saying that freedom for him is having the technical facility to be able to execute whatever he wants. Just whatever image he has in his mind. That's not freedom. That's control or power. Whereas I think Margot understands freedom to be the freedom to take risks, the freedom to do something bad or to appear foolish, to not recognize that difference is a pretty big thing. I said nothing, feeling tense. I wanted to defend Shalom, but I wasn't sure how. It's like with improv. Misha said. True improv is about surprising yourself, but most people won't improvise truthfully. They're afraid. What they do is pull from their bag of tricks. They take what they already know how to do and apply it to the present situation. But that's cheating. And cheating's bad for an artist. It's bad in life. But it's really bad in art. We had circled ten blocks and the sun had gone down as we were talking. The houses and trees were now painted a dark, dusty blue. Misha said he had a phone meeting, so he started back towards his apartment. His work life was strange, and didn't I didn't quite understand it, but neither did he, and it sometimes perplexed and saddened him. There seemed to be no structure or cohesion to it at all. He did only the things he was good at, and the things that gave him pleasure. Sometimes he taught improv classes to non-actors. Sometimes he tried to keep nightclubs out of the Portuguese neighborhood where he lived. Sometimes he hosted shows. There was no name you could give to it all. 
In the short biography he had submitted to Harvard for what would become a dense leather-bound volume for distribution at his 15-year college reunion, his classmates wrote lengthy entries about their worldly success, their children, and their spouses. Misha's entry had simply stated, Does anyone else feel really weird about having gone to Harvard, giving, given the life they're living now? I live in a two-bedroom apartment above a bikini store in Toronto with my girlfriend Margot. Good night, I said. Good night. Several years ago, when I was engaged to be married, but afraid to go through with it, afraid that I would end up divorced like my parents and not wanting to make a big mistake, I had gone to Misha with my concerns. We were drinking at a party and left to take a walk through the night, our feet brushing gently through the lightly fallen snow. As we walked, I told Misha my fears. Then, after listening for a while, he finally said, The only thing I ever understood is that everyone should be make everyone should be making the big mistakes. So I took what he said to heart and got married. Three years later I was divorced. Well, that takes us to chapter two, which is called At the Point Where Conviction Meets the Rough Texture of Life. Um, but I will stop there, uh, even though I really don't want to, I am into this. Um, yeah, I would highly recommend a reading. Um, the first line in this new chapter is, In the years leading up to my marriage, my first thought every morning was about wanting to marry. Which isn't that... Um, I mean, that's not my personal thoughts in the morning, um, but it is funny how we think about um, things that we want so much, and then we get them, and then yikes. Um, but I really loved this. She's very honest about um, about the way we think as humans and how should a person be because I have no idea um I feel like when I moved um here to Brooklyn the first like two weeks I was like so self-conscious about like I desperately wanted to be myself but I didn't feel like myself was cool <laughs> as silly as that seems like I was like I know I wouldn't see myself on the street and be like wow look at that person they're so cool and like I just wonder what their life is like um and I was like that's of course that's what I want to portray to people I want people to think I'm cool and intrigued by my life because I think I have an interesting life but the first two weeks I was like so in my head about thinking about this and only recently have I realized that the like maybe the blessing and the curse of New York City is that um there's so many people that you are alone all the time um because people aren't looking I mean yes people are looking at you on the street but 
like growing up in a small town or even in Richmond, like there was so much pressure to smile at everyone that you pass by or like, I don't know, wave to people when you're driving in the country, which is also a really sweet thing to do, but it is just like a fake way of being... I mean, maybe it's not fake. It's being kind to people, but it's also exhausting. And there's just no way you could ever do it here, so. But it's, it's like, freeing to know that um, you are truly just one out of so many other people. And, well, I mean, the probability of someone passing you on the street and thinking that you're cool is pretty high. Um, even if you don't think it yourself. And also the probability of passing people on the street that don't look at you and will never remember who you are is the majority, which is very freeing. Um, yeah, so now that I've spilled my deep, dark insecurities on here, but I'm sure that's like everyone. Um, of course we want to portray like the best version of ourself and if that's what we're portraying is it what we want people to see who we're being or who it are we being who we are and people are seeing it <laughs> me and Sheila I'm gonna send her an email <laughs> anyway I'm sorry this one has been so chaotic I wish it hadn't started off so um so chaotic because I really that one I keep saying this but that one's my it's in my top of my favorites so um maybe I'll be reading more of that on the train ride home um yeah but thank you for listening to how did it get so late I hope you have a lovely rest of your night um and week and sweet dreams until next time um this one will be up uh probably tomorrow i'll upload it on the website and i will put the rest up for um the next two weeks as well in case anyone wants to go back and revisit some fun little stories last week's was um really good i really loved last week's and then also, I highly recommend the Miranda July one, um, if you have some time. That one was also very good, but yeah, sweet dreams.